Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. My guest this week is Simon Jenkins, whose new book is The Celts, A Skeptical History. Now, Simon, you announce pretty much in paragraph one of this book about the Celts that you're writing a book about something that doesn't actually exist. If the Celts never existed, why are they a thing? How did they come to be a myth? Well, it's a good question. The word means foreigner or something like that in Greek and is used by Herodotus, but anybody who wasn't a Greek. And since then, it, it really decayed and wasn't used much. It was revived in the late 17th, 18th century by linguists who were, who were noticing that some languages had much in common, although they weren't the same. And out of that concept of a Celtic language emerged the theory that if there's a language, there must be a people, and this people must have existed once. And a thing called Celtomania occurred at the end of the 18th century into the 19th century, when everybody went berserk, that before the Romans, before the Greeks, there was this great civilization in Europe called the Celts. And although for the past 30, 40, 50 years, academics have debunked this concept, starting with J.R.R. Tolkien, rather interestingly, it just will not go away. The British Museum recently held yet another exhibition on the Celts, which is complete rubbish from start to finish, including the catalogue. I mean, the odd nod in the direction of poor Barry Cunliffe, who's, who's the professor of Celtic studies, and wishes the word had never been invented. But the answer is that they were an invention of the modern age, largely people who are Anglo-Saxons, who also never existed, but that's a separate conversation, in a sense to explain why people to the west of the British Isles were somehow or other inferior to the people in the east of the British Isles, which explains why there was a sort of early British empire of the Anglo-Saxons. So they're a modern invention, and what interests me is the fact they hadn't really gone away. The very reaction of the Westminster establishment to Scottish and Irish independence throughout the 20th and 21st centuries now illustrates how they sort of want an excuse to assert their sovereignty over the Celts, and it's still there. Yeah, and that East-West divide that you, know, you, you talk about as being, being central, I mean, this begins with geography, doesn't it? With limestone, in which we could speak in praise of. How does that work? I mean, what's the, what's the geographical basis for the differences between these peoples or these cultures, if you like? Well, as you know better than I, all history, in fact, all science of any sort begins with geography. So it, it does begin with geography. It is the case that the British Isles were settled after the Iron Age by people seeping up the, the Atlantic coast of, of Europe from Iberia coming to the British Isles, it remains moot in DNA archaeology, which is the great revolutionary subject in the last 50 years that's changed so much of our perception of that prehistory period. They settled there. Some people appear to have drifted in from North Europe, the so-called steppe origination people, and they brought with them different genes. And they, they settled, or it appears that they settled, each side of the British Isles, if not equally, at least in a sense equally divided by the Great Limestone Divide, as you say. So right from the earliest times, there was a sort of apparent difference between East and West. And certainly by the, by the Bronze Age, when trade began to increase contact between peoples and languages became needed as lingua franca, it appears that the Celtic language seeped up the West side and Germanic languages seeped up the East side. And that's about as far as we can take it. But it is the case that there was a divide, and that divide appears not to have been particularly genetic, but it was linguistic. And that's what gave rise to the theory that there were these Celts who somehow, they defeated the ancient Britons and then they were defeated by the Anglo-Saxons, which is a figment of historical imagination, really. Yes, this idea that seems to have been absolutely entrenched in 
you know, school history lessons since you know, the 16th century, more or less, that at some point a Germanic peoples came sweeping into England from the West and pushed out the locals, you know, and their elaborate knotwork and druidic practices and so forth. I mean, that's just bollocks, you say. That's yes. We were here all along. Is that right? What actually puzzles me, and it, it should puzzle everyone. I mean, almost everyone I've asked when writing this book, and I just set out to write a history of the, the half of the British Isles that weren't weren't English. But almost everyone I mention it to says, "You're wrong. It, they were Celts, and they invaded, defeated the people who built Stonehenge, and then we all know that in the fifth century they were invaded by the Saxons. Isn't that true?" Now, almost everyone, in historian of this period, particularly historians now with the aid of, of, of masses of, of DNA archaeology, know that it's just not true. Susan Oosterhazen wrote a book just two years ago, three years ago, 2019, in which she completely debunked the theory of the Saxon invasion by looking at every conceivable kind of linguistic, archaeological, geological evidence that there was available. And yet, still, almost everybody I've met thinks there was a Saxon invasion. Well, I suppose we're, we're all t- taught history at a certain age. Right? Well, you're right, yes. Can you tell me what it was that made you think, right, this book needs writing now? I said I'd written a history of England, a short history of England, and as one of the people said, it's very nice, history of England, what about, what about Britain? And, you know, one said, if you read any history of Britain, I mean, the, the, the famous Oxford history of Britain, which was written in the 1930s, or the first edition was written in the 1930s. It said, we must remember that the British Isles is a collection of nations of the East and the West. We cover them both. That truth <laughs> turns out to be a lie. It hardly mentions Scotland, Ireland or Wales in the whole of the five, six volumes. I, I thought it would be just interesting to, to look, as, as Norman Davis did famously, at the British Isles, sort of turning them upside down. What did the other half, and it's roughly half land area, what did they experience under what became, undoubtedly, English dominance? So it's the evolution of an English empire of the British Isles, and that empire, to me, was, in a sense, an unfair one. It was an empire. All of them were treated very badly in the Middle Ages. The Plantagenets just conquered them, defeated them in battle endlessly without necessarily conquering them. And then you had the Welsh being absorbed or assimilated by, by the Tudors. The Scots always been an ambivalent relationship with England, but completely different from the Welsh. And the Irish being treated like, like a very subordinate colony and treated atrociously. And by the end of it, the Irish just said, we've had enough, we're going. And what interested me, I think, was the inability, on the one hand, of, of the story to correct itself, but also the fact that because the story hadn't corrected itself, the politics hadn't corrected themselves. And so you get these phrases like the Celtic fringe, the implication that the Celts are romantic and they're inefficient and hopeless, uh, all this sort of mythology surrounding the Celts since the, since the 19th century, helped by Irish poets and so on. And indeed, a lot of people who've read my book said, but you don't understand that Celticism is, is not about politics, it's about mystique. It's only the English that say that. And part of the point of my book is to re-establish the concept of English people as the original tribes of England but the Welsh, the Scots and the Irish as being quite distinct peoples. They have nothing in common. They've never shared a country. They've never formed an alliance. When the English were oppressing them, they never helped each other. They're utterly different peoples speaking different languages. And yet the English like to lump them together as Celts and and, and impossible in some way. Well, there there are sort of two points there, aren't there, that really run through this but one of them is linguistic which as you say I think the the sort of Celtic I mean there isn't a Celtic language exactly but the kind of Celtic branch of Proto-Indo-European I think is it called Brethonic that in your account of it originally evolved as a lingua franca of trade so you'd think was absolutely you know ripe for if you like forming a general lingua franca a kind of coherent 
linguistic community. That never happened. Why is that, do you think? Where, as you say, the English also had a whole smattering of different tongues, managed to form quite a cohesive linguistic unit. Well, I think, I have to say, nothing in this book is new. <laughs> I'm just reporting what, what I've read. Barry Cunliffe, who's a friend of mine, is a great authority in the subject, and he's delved deep into the questions you've just asked. In the first place, languages can spread without peoples having to spread. There's a Romance language, there's a Scandinavian language. We don't speak of people being the Romance tribe or even the Scandinavian tribe. It's fairly clear that Celtic arrived, fairly clear, I say, Celtic arrived probably in the, in the third or second millennium BC, long after uh, the British Isles had been colonised, so to speak, or settled by people from across Europe uh, millenniums earlier. The point about the languages is, is that they came from outside. The question then is, why is it, as you, as you asked, that the English very quickly forged one language out of their tribal argos, whatever it was that they, they spoke in the distant past, and that's a great question. Whereas the people of the West, as I call them, didn't. And it appears to be geography. The people of the West acquired these proto-Celtic derivatives, let's put it that way, from the sea, the people of the sea, the people of the Atlantic, as Cunliffe calls them. But they didn't associate with each other because the geography was against it. The great theory of, of, of prehistoric demographics is you must treat sea as land. The North Sea was one community. The Irish Sea was one community. But it was a community of, of shores that were, were rugged, largely impermeable. People weren't in regular contact with each other such that they needed one language, although well, I suppose the people of Ireland in a sense did. But these languages remained distinct because the peoples remained distinct and they could handle life, so to speak, without ever merging their languages. Now, I have to say, I mean, those Welsh were spoken in the Scottish lowlands. Brythonic, which was the one version of, of Celtic, was pretty extensive across Western Britain. Um, Cornish has much in common with Welsh. It has a lot in common with Breton. In England, it was easy to communicate by land. And people up and down rivers, uh, they all were speaking an English, an English language, really as, as early as Alfred the Great. Yeah. Actually, incidentally, you make, you make the point that in Scotland, or lowland Scotland at least, a version of Welsh was spoken. You have a lovely story about collaring Alex Salmond and telling him he should have his welcome signs at the airport in, in Welsh. I mean, how did he respond to that? Was he aware of what you were joking about? Here? A, no, he wasn't. B, he responded badly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the great Welsh poet, yes. I mean, they, they, these people were, were, were Scots. I mean, they were from the, the Godothin, it's called, area around, around Edinburgh. And they, they spoke something called North Welsh. And indeed, they regarded their Welsh, and in, indeed, actually, Gerald of Wales said their Welsh was a more pure Welsh than the Irish adulterated Welsh of South Wales. So things were very different then. But the, all these different, like Cumbric, you see, was, it was a very distinctly language of the Lake District. Cumbric, it sounds like Welsh. Welsh is Cymraic. So you have a very distinctive background to these languages. What I do find extraordinary is that they did never merge. No one merged them. No one tried to merge them. There was no joint ruler. There was no political context in which they should have merged. So unlike England, where you had the, the, the seven kingdoms, the Heptarchy, very swiftly merged into one kingdom, or three kingdoms and one kingdom, under Athelstan. And uh, when you're running a kingdom, you want everyone to speak the same language, and they spoke English. Yes, you described someone, I think, is it on the Welsh side of the border, hearing someone jibber-jabbering in another language on the other side of the river? Well, St. Bino, we're in the 6th century, I think. It was quite interesting because you do begin to think, why was it that English spread quite substantially west of the Pennine Divide and did so clearly very quickly? And Celtic appears to have vanished. It's yeah. very uncommon for a language to vanish completely from a new language. 
In fact, it's almost unknown. And one of the one of the, the main pieces of evidence for the Eastern British not having ever spoken Welsh or Brythonic is that there's no trace of Celtic in English. I mean, in, in all the languages of Europe, French, Spanish, there are all kinds of traces of previous possibly proto-Celtic tongues uh, surviving into their languages. In English, there's plenty of traces of Latin derived from the Roman conquest, traces of, of Norse deriving from the Viking conquest, traces of French from the Norman conquest. How come there's nothing surviving of Celtic in the case of the Anglo-Saxon conquest, despite it being apparently a complete wipeout? Anyway, that's, it's one of these puzzles, and, and it's interesting that academics just can't crack it yet. Language is the most difficult thing to crack, I think. Yeah. Well, there's also the the politics of it. I mean, as you you know, you, you you take a fantastic amount of span of time from the sort of Bronze Age right up to the present day, and one of the themes of the book that emerges, you say, you know, if these Western fringes, you know, the vassal states of an English empire, were all, you know, as they tended to be through most of the history, pretty much oppressed, they never ganged up. They never formed a kind of joint Celtic identity. Indeed, they, they found it quite hard, even you know, the individual nations getting their acts together. Again, why, why was that? I mean, maybe some of that's an accident of geography, but what are the obstacles? The two, I mean, one obstacle is, is geography. I mean, the, the geography of the West of Britain, it's a bit like the Aegean. It's lots of shores and lots of seas and lots of different peoples. Uh, different peoples sometimes get on well together, sometimes they don't. Quite why the so to speak, Celtic-speaking pupils, using this term with great care, just couldn't get on with each other, is a mystery. It's just a mystery. We know that the, the DNA pattern of the British Isles, which we now know fairly closely, is like a kaleidoscope, it's like a patchwork quilt. There's no great mass of Irish, great mass of Scottish, great mass of Welsh. There are groups of people with different um, genomes, as they're called, all of which is now being revealed in ever greater detail. But we find that the Cornish and the Devonians have a very distinct DNA pattern. The clusters are distinct between them, and they don't get on. The Devonians and the Somerset people and the Wiltshire people get on perfectly well. The North Welsh and the South Welsh really don't get on. I mean, they won't support each other's football teams. And when you look at the clusters, they're very different. So there's something as yet misunderstood or not understood about the nature of DNA and its relationship with community, communality, possibly language. But that and the fact that they are, particularly because the, I mean, the great English breakthrough is when the English conquered the, the local kings to the south of the Cotswolds in Somerset, Battle of Durham and so on, and reached Morecambe Bay across Lancashire, effectively cutting the Welsh in half was the phrase used when these battles took place. So the Welsh, who, who were the Brythonic speakers, so to speak, were divided from each other it would have been difficult for them to collaborate. But when they tried, I mean, there's, there's a great poem in Welsh by a, a Welsh monk, of goodness knows what he was, in which he's pleading for the peoples who are cousins, he, sa- he said, to join together against Athelstan at the Battle of Brunnenborough. Almost the only time anyone's proposed a coalition of the Celts, or Celtic speakers, the Welsh refused to turn up because they'd done a deal with Athelstan on their own. And I, I, I sort of reflected curiously that when you spin right forward to the great, the great battle of the Westerners against the Easterners, which was Irish home rule in the 19th century. You didn't even get MPs in the House of Commons from Ireland, Wales and Scotland colluding together. They just didn't, they didn't work together as a team. And I actually was asking someone, 
during the lockdown. I said, does the First Minister of, of, of Wales, the First Minister of Scotland and the First Minister of Northern Ireland ever collude as to what they're going to do during lockdown? It never occurred to them. So it's a puzzle, is all I can say. And of course, it was dead easy for the English because they just had to divide and rule. Yes, absolutely. Now, I mean, the process of dividing and ruling, you, you talk in the book about imperial blindness. And if I'm not misrepresenting it, one of the theses of the book is that there were various points at which we could have handled it better. I mean, by which I mean England, as having the whip hand in this, you know, what went on to be the Union, either to create a, a, a less annoyed Celtic fringe or a more kind of profitable and even federation. I mean, where were those pivotal missed opportunities? I think there's a point at which you say, you know, the 14th century, if that had turned out differently, you know, everything might be tickety-boo now. Well, the Middle Ages had, had its own sort of ethos of central government. Edward I and his successors treated the Celtic speakers appallingly as conquered peoples. And when they defied him, he, he repressed them in every conceivable way. The chief victims coming out of the Middle Ages were the Irish. The Irish had been used to ruling themselves. They had a parliament into the end of the 18th century as the Scottish had to the end of the 17th century. They enjoyed a degree of self-rule insofar as anyone was ruling anything in those days. And they, to that extent, felt a certain amount of sovereignty and a certain amount of national pride and so on. The great mistake was to go for union and to call it union and to obliterate the concept of difference. The Welsh were merged with England by Henry VIII in 1535-36. The Scots were united with England in 1707 and the Irish in 1801. All of them, after bruising encounters with the English, in the case of the Scots in the Civil War and the, the 45 uprising, in the case of the Irish, revolutions all the time. And the English solution to this was to call them all English or British. You can send your MPs to Parliament and they will be like any English county. And that was the end of the matter. Now, what's interesting, and I try in the book to do it, is to compare how other countries in Europe reacted to similar areas of dissension geographically with provinces within, their, within their, their boundaries in order to establish a reasonably stable nation-state which was rulable without endlessly partitioning itself. And the English just never went down that route. We never went down the federal route. London always thought it was boss. London always thought that these Celts, as they called them eventually, were there to be, basically, to do what they're told. And right into the 20th century, in the case of Ireland, not an inch was given when Home Rule failed under Gladstone, not an inch was given. Laws of Ireland were changed, and there was certainly land reform occurred to, in some sense, appease them. But right up until the 19, during the First World War in 1920, I mean, Lloyd George, he, he really was trying to stop Ireland declaring its independence. And I think this centralisation, the centralism is the, the elephant in the room, the refusal of London to believe that anybody, frankly, outside London has any right to any form of self-rule is at the heart of the trouble right through this whole story. Now, if it, if it wasn't, you know, a real ethnic, genetic or linguistic identity as a kind of coherent thing, in what sense and to what degree do you think that Celtic sort of became one as it created its own myth? I mean, I'm interested, you know, as you point out, linguistically, Keltoi means, you know, foreigners or other people just as barbarians and the Greeks, but, you know, the guys who aren't us. And I think you even say that Welsh comes from a word meaning foreigner. So the sort of not-Englishness and the, you know, routinely beaten up by the Englishness of these peoples, even if they weren't united, has that become a meaningful identity? And how much was that 
the drive of the sort of invention of Celticness in the 18th and 19th centuries? In a sense, it's a central question. I mean, I sort of ask myself, having established this non-existence of the Celts, I didn't say, does it really matter? And it has mattered because it's governed the way in which the English have reacted to the, to the Welsh, Scots and Irish throughout history, but into the modern day. And I think the question of how far it matters and in what sense does it matter is only resolvable by saying, well, these people, these once Celtic-speaking peoples, may be basically no different from the English. As we, we, they just occupied a different bit of the archipelago. But the fact is now that they have, largely through onrush of modern history, developed a national identity and national characteristics, a feeling of being different, a feeling of being oppressed, I mean, I, I don't think I quoted in the book, but I came across a speech from Phil Bennett, the Welsh rugby star, used to galvanise the Welsh team when they were playing the English in the most appalling fashion. These are the people who raped your ancestors. These are the people who stole your land. These are the people who stole your coal, your steel, your sheep, everything. Go for the bastards, get them, do them down. Now's your chance. I mean, as <laughs> we're starting a football match. <laughs> but it spoke very much to their, their myth. And this myth, which is, I mean, we know, we know to be in Scotland during the, the independence referendum was not very nice for English people or for people who wanted to remain with the English. In Ireland, I mean, it was very interesting in Ireland, Ireland was passionately anti-English. When Ireland went independent, it took them 20 or 30 years to get it out of their system. But by the 1970s, 80s, Ireland was beginning to find itself confidence as an independent state. And I have to say, if I was sitting in Edinburgh looking at Ireland, I'd say to myself, you know, what have we done wrong that they've done right? Ireland has been a phenomenal success. The archetypical Celt was an Irish leprechaun. He was kind of someone who, who Macaulay and Matthew Arnold said they should never be left in charge of a country. They have no political nous. They're inefficient. They're unenterprising. They can't run anything. And the Irish economy rather spoke to that, largely because of the way the English treated it. Now no one says that about the Irish. Now, the Irish are the smart Alex. They're, they're doing well. So these characterizations of peoples are so dangerous and so unfair. But as long as they are in some sense subservient, and the fact is that Scotland, for instance, at the moment, is subservient. I mean, this very week there's a row about how far it can or cannot hold a referendum on its own future uh, to London. It's just embedded in the, in, in the political psyche of London. And when I see, when I study what happened, why did, why did Czechoslovakia break apart? Why did Yugoslavia break apart? Why did these countries fail eventually to establish a federal system that was secure and stable? It was largely because central government did, didn't get the point. And that's what's happening in England now still. There is a lovely line in the book where you quote somebody saying, Celts are basically about millinery. <laughs> I mean, how much is the Celtic identity in terms of cultural, you know, signifiers, which I guess we think of sort of not work and certain types of music and so forth. I mean, is that a complete confection, like the sort of, as you talk about Walter Scott's, you know, more or less invention of Scotland's tartan identity in the 19th century? Well, I try to be fair to the successive Celtic movements ever since Celtic mania. I mean, Napoleon was convinced he was a Celtic emperor. I mean, it, they went mad. Beethoven wrote sort of 24 Celtic songs. Uh, Mendelssohn wrote Fingal's Cave Overture about a Celtic ruler, supposedly, in the, in the, in the Hebrides. They, they just went mad because they genuinely thought they found an entirely new ancestral civilization, And that's, I'm afraid, still the case. What has happened, really began the end of the 19th century, is various groups got together to promote Celticism. 
the Celtic League, various Celtic societies. They all had bases either in Dublin, Cardiff, Cardiff hardly ever, mostly in, in London, London Welsh with the, the Welsh, um, and in Edinburgh. Walter Scott founded Scots Celtic, I think it was called the Atlantic League or Society. They're all attempts to bring together these peoples who the English had told them they were, to put it that way. They just never worked. I mean, I'm sure there's still two or three going, I just don't know. They get together occasionally, usually in Galicia or... I mean, the peoples who called themselves Celts or were told that they were Celts tried to get together. It never really worked. The Irish were always furious that these groups weren't anti-English. The groups, often led by the Welsh, because the Welsh had the language alive and kicking, the Welsh were annoyed that the Irish were, were, were terrorists and rebels. They never gelled, and they'd end up with these extraordinary costume parades in, in which they'd all put on mayoral robes or whatever, and, and the Welsh would turn up in druidical garments. I don't want to sort of do it down because it never was that, that far up, but there has been a persistent attempt to try and codify some sort of Celtic system. Someone has occasionally tried to do a Celtic language, a, a bit like Esperanto. It never caught on. It's really just a, a matter of trying not to overrate something that really was never very significant. The only area where Celticism is caught on as a concept is academia, where academics, with the time when Celts were thought to be serious, or a serious group, formed Celtic departments of universities, particularly in, in Wales and Scotland, and still are. Although I have to say most of them acknowledge the non-existence of the Welsh in, in the terms that I've given. One aspect of what, what you talk about is the origins of Plaid Cymru and the language being sort of central to the political platform. But it seems like that was almost a complete non-starter in history. Is that right? When Plaid Cymru started, you know, almost nobody was interested. And that attempts to keep the Welsh language going, particularly by teaching it compulsorily in schools and by replacing Channel 4 with, you know, Welsh television channel, actually were hugely unpopular with the Welsh. Well, there's Welsh and Welsh. It's a, a hot political topic, really. But it's now politically essential for all Welsh people to be taught Welsh. In the same sense, it was crucial for the Irish to be taught Irish, even when almost no Irish people could understand it and very few people could teach it. And it was interesting to me that Irish was abandoned as, as a compulsory tool in the 1980s. And the, I think I mentioned in the book, the white paper abandoning it said, we no longer need to do this. It's no longer, we no longer need the liberating rhetoric of the language. And, of course, what happens then was, having been very unpopular among Irish parents, not to mention children, it's a very difficult language, Irish is now really quite popular as a hobby. The same is true in Wales, to an extent. My, my wife is trying to learn Welsh. I mean, as a second homer, it's not a popular thing to be in Wales. But Welsh is very popular. It was hugely popular during lockdown. I mean, everybody was spending lockdown trying to learn Welsh. But in the politics of it... Because very few people, very few people, a fifth of the population, if you're lucky, understood some Welsh. Plaid Cymru was started by a few enthusiasts, really, Saunders, Lewis and Cohen, who really just thought that the politics of Wales should be about the language. And that really did turn people off. So they were scoring 2 3% in polls. But once they, in effect, abandoned languages as, as, as their cohering rhetoric, as it was called, and relax that point of view. Welsh nationalism has gone from being 2-3% to being 20-30% at times. It's a great debate as to what it really means. But certainly Welsh political identity has increased by leaps and bounds in the past 20 and 30 years. And one of the reasons is they've managed to detach it from the language question. 
And I think, for what it's worth, I mean, because I, I, I know these Welsh communities well, I mean, it does not help a community to have it divided by language and to have some children speaking it Welsh and some speaking English. It really does not. It's, it's just like Northern Ireland at times, where you've got a deep division between two sort of language groups. If you just leave it as being what it, it was for a long time, and I think it will, always will be, a matter of pride to people that they've got their own language, something that they can all gather around, they can promote, they can publish it, huge subsidies go into the Welsh language, but not make it a compulsory or divisive issue, which is in danger of being politically. That's the best thing, I think. Yes, I think, I mean, maybe this is, this is in one portion of Wales, but you said, you quote, I think, a Welsh MP telling you that during the 80s, when Mrs Thatcher was uncharacteristically, if you like, blackmailed into allowing them to have a Welsh language television station, the constituents were crosser about that replacing English-speaking Channel 4 than they were about the pit closures. Well, uh, that's what he said. <laughs> that's all I can say. I mean, these are people <laughs> in South Wales, none of whom spoke, well, well, come on than they did, but I mean, Glamorgan, which is half the Welsh population, roughly, they really didn't speak Welsh, and they'd suddenly lost one of their four television channels then. And they were furious, and uh, he, he, said, he said, you know, they couldn't get rid of them. So, I mean, it's, it's a minor political issue, but it illustrates the point that people really resented being told by Plaid Cymru that, that if they weren't speaking Welsh, they weren't really Welsh. That really infuriated people, and it still does, I think. Language is a, a, a dangerous tool of politics, I've always thought it. It should be cultural, it should be kept cultural, you can receive as much money as it likes, but it should not become a political determinant, because it's very divisive. We know, we know this from the whole, the, almost all these topics we're discussing are demonstrated elsewhere in Europe to have been satisfactorily resolved. We have not done it yet. And it, I just, I feel ashamed of the fact that we haven't done it yet. Well, moving on to how we do it. I mean, you start to talk about the growing movements, separate, as you say, among the Welsh, the Irish, the Scots, for serious independence. Or, I mean, I'm assuming but correct me if I'm wrong, that full separate sovereignty, that actual simply splitting up the union into four different countries isn't something you'd be in favour of. But a point you make is that the devolution process actually adds fuel to the secessionist fire rather than otherwise. I mean, I think, as you say, Tony Blair was not rewarded for his moves to give Scotland more independence. You know, there was a sort of give them an inch thing. How do you feel you resolve that? Well, you resolve it as as, as Spain has done. I mean, Spain has got real problems with the Catalans and the Basques, or had real problems. They responded ad hoc in each case, and I think the same applies to us. It was conceivable in 1921 that Ireland would have remained a part of the United Kingdom, but as a self-governing province of it. It was because the English handled departure so appallingly. Lloyd George, who was a bloody Celtic-speaking person, his last, his last conversation with de Valera, which I think I quote in the book, that the two of them, de Valera came into the Downing Street office to discuss the treaty and addressed Lloyd George in Irish. Lloyd George didn't know what on earth he was talking about, then realised what he was talking about and decided he was going to address him in Welsh. For the first time in history, two great Celtic kings, great Celtic warriors, were actually together running the whole of the British Isles and they couldn't talk to each other in one language. I mean, it was just bitterly ironic. But the answer to your question really has to be ad hoc. Wales is never going to be an independent state. It just it doesn't make any kind of sense. But it needs desperately to recover its, its economic self-confidence. It's just hemorrhaging talent into England every year. 
Scotland is a very interesting case. I think Scotland suffers greatly, not from a talent drain, which is the most devastating thing a country can have. It just suffers from the fact it's not in control of its own economy and has become heavily dependent on treasury subsidies. So you've got to find a way of ending that. And Devo Max, as it was called, was a way of doing that. Alex Salmond rejected it when offered it by uh, David Cameron, I think unwisely, as a result of which Scotland's become ever more dependent on the British Treasury. Do you think he regrets that? I, I haven't a clue. I mean, the trouble with these debates, is, as you sort of implied, is they just become very divisive. I mean, Northern Ireland is a desperate case of divisiveness. But Scotland's becoming deeply divided, and it's, it, I, just, I don't regard 50% as being enough for independence. It should be 60% or even more. But at the end of it, it, they're just bitterly divided. And the nonsense gets talked about independence in Scotland, about how the economy would operate. And it took Ireland 50 years to establish the so-called Celtic Tiger, not, I may say, an Irish word, <laughs> invented by an American banker. Yeah. But no, it, it, somehow or other, each of these situations has got to be handled differently. And yet they could be handled, as they have been handled on the continent. Switzerland is a phenomenon. I mean, Switzerland defines democracy differently in different cantons. You've just got to look at each country separately and decide what's the best for that country in its relationship with Britain. And is your view that a federal relationship would get better if, for instance, you know, over a period of years you taper down the Barnett formula and these various semi-independent self-governing statelets no longer feel dependent, because one often resents people for doing one a good turn, are no longer dependent on the central government purse. Well, I, I mean, dependency is a, a very complex concept embedded in ideology and all sorts of other facet, facets of politics. But certainly, I mean, there are Scots people who say we're not dependent on the Treasury. and we, we, They've so managed to define the inputs and outputs of the economy that Scotland's, in effect, self-sufficient, in which case I'd say, well, let's end the Barnet formula. But, yes, the trick is to find a way of so defining sovereignty that it's not absolute at either end of the spectrum that these countries feel they're running themselves, feel they're in control of their internal affairs, and yet are prepared to offer allegiance, in some sense of the word allegiance, to a superior confederacy in matters of foreign affairs, defence, whatever it may be, and obviously, in an important sense, in the matter of trade. And, and the problems we're having now in Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland are exactly what you get when you don't form a formal confederacy in which these matters are resolved from the start. I would like to see Scotland go the way of Northern Ireland and rejoin the single market. And you've got a problem with a border somewhere around Hadrian's Wall. But you would allow the Scottish and the Irish collectively to form an economic union within the common market, within the EU. And Britain is then, or England and Wales, are then, in a sense, isolated south of Hadrian's Wall and east of the Irish Sea. And I think eventually it would simply come back into the, into the single market, not the, common, not the EU, but the single market. And that's my way back for the EU from, the, from Brexit. But that's a, that's, a, that's a personal theory. That's sort of instrumental federalism. Yes. I mean, how much has Brexit... Well, the two things, the Brexit and the pandemic response, that towards the end of the book you say, look, these have massively changed the weighting of the dice. And with pandemic response, I think you seem to suggest that that, that was devolved maybe not so much out of respect for the autonomy of the regions as a desire not to take the blame for everything, but maybe you read it differently. Uh, no, I read it exactly that way. I was, I was genuinely quite surprised. I think Boris Johnson just thought, you know, this is going to be hell. At least let the Welsh and the Scottish and the Northern Irish regimes take the flak for the hell in their bit rather than me. It was quite interesting, I think, that all three of them saw their popularity soar 
while Boris has plummeted as a result of that particular decision. People do like being allowed to run their own affairs. And Mark Drakeford in Wales was, was nothing, absolutely nothing, until lockdown. He's become an absolute, a celebrity in Wales now. Um, he, he didn't make any particularly radical decisions. And I'm afraid there was an awful lot of xenophobia went into some of the lockdown regulations, as we knew personally. But people in London just can't quite understand that people want to run their own affairs. And it's something that, you know, talking to a Swiss about this, they say, we just can't understand you idiots in England. Why don't you let them go their own way? You know, in Switzerland, they pay their taxes, or some of them, to the state. They sign up to a Swiss passport, and that's about it. But everybody regards Switzerland as a reasonably stable country. We have not found this, this magic key to unlock the locker of federalism. In the case of Ireland, I mean, when, when America went independent in, in the 18th century, uh, Burke, who's so wise in so many things, Burke said, for goodness sake, George III, see what you've done. Ask why you've done it and don't do it in Ireland. And he was a speaker, he's an Irishman. They did, did it in Ireland. At the end of the Irish saga in 1921, you'd think someone would say, now we don't want Scotland to go the same way. Did they? No. I mean, just we're so smug about the political sophistication of of Britain. We don't know where it's, where it's remiss, and it's very remiss in matters of federalism. Well, I mean, I know predictions is odious, but where do you see us in 50 years' time? Do you think we will either change our tune and learn from our mistakes in England, or do you think that the political will will shift enough that we don't get a choice about it? Where do you, where do you think we end up? <laughs> I hate predicting. Everyone thinks journalists are good at predicting. They're terrible at predicting. And they usually predict catastrophe when catastrophe doesn't occur. Also, they think things happen far faster than they do happen. So I, I, I really don't like it. I mean, if you say, how does this clearly unstable situation... I mean, the relationship between London and Scotland is unstable. Every year, or every two years, it comes back. Scotland now has, has for most of this century, elected a separatist government and is, is persistently popular, that government, with the Scots, even though the Scots don't overwhelmingly want independence. But it is an independence government, and that makes the English Union unstable. Northern Ireland is now unstable. It's probably the case that the Northern Irish will, if you look at the, the de demographics of Northern Ireland, it, it will vote for reunion within the next 10 years, and most Northern Irish people think it. It's not as if they refuse to believe it. So at that point, Ireland has gone completely from the United Kingdom. Scotland, the overwhelming majority of young people... I mean, Scotland is independent in its youth, as is Wales. These countries are not taking to the United Kingdom in the manner in which you might think they might. They're not thinking to themselves, oh, you know, we love being a part of the United Kingdom and uh, whatever happens, we'd like that to continue. Younger people, and young people aren't right, nor do they necessarily stay young very long or keep their views very young. But at the moment, you do look at the demographics and say the chances are that Scotland will vote for independence at some point in, 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 in the next generation. In which case, I, I really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, England and Wales, what do you call it for a start? They're very, they're very soon, rest of UK, I mean, uh, R-O-U-K, people are inventing names of this country. I think, what are we doing? It's, it's, it, you know, even Yugoslavia was more decorous about the way in which it broke up. So I don't know, I, don't, I can't predict it. However, one thing I think we're going to have to do, we're going to, have, we're going to have to rejoin the single market somehow. You cannot go on with this craziness. And I do think that what's happened in Northern Ireland is interesting, because in Northern Ireland you couldn't take Northern Ireland out of the single market, and it stayed in it, and it's causing no end of trouble, but it has stayed in it. 
and most Northern Irish people do not want to leave the single market. The same clearly applies to the Scots. I think most English people will think it was a mistake to leave the single market, irrespective of what they felt about the EU. And I therefore think you'll have a government seeking to do a Norway or whatever it is with the EU. In other words, rejoin the single market, end these lunacies at the border. Then the question of what we do vis-a-vis the EU politically will be for another day. But clearly the EU is going to change its character over the next 10, 20 years. And where we are in that change, who knows? Simon Jenkins, thanks very much indeed for your time. 